Welcome back to the Integrateness Podcast. And we said it would be a week last week between shows, but we decided that because of the nature of the storytelling, it would be good to launch them both in the same week. Yeah, we're not going to wait, make you guys wait this time. Just once, though. First time. Just once, week. yeah. We can't do two a week forever because, because we're just too fucking busy. That's why. <laughs> what was that line from Family Guy that Stewie would always say? Because fuck you, that's why. <laughs> Because fuck you, that's why. We're going to have to think of some clever uh, letter Kenny titles for these two. I've already been working on it in my head. <laughs> we, we started that trend and we must continue it as long as we can. Yeah. All right. So, so we're, here, we're here for my story now. This is going to be Jolene's story. And if you've listened to Jason's story, then you'll see where some of these parallels are, which is really cool as it unfolds, because Jason and I actually don't know each other very well. Um, we know like kind of some touchstone pieces of things, but we are like also getting to know each other through this podcast. So that's really cool. Um, so I am the 4-0. This year I turned 40. Um, it was also a milestone year for me, Jason. Mm -hmm. um, and through that, you know, I look at some of those key definitive things. We talked about your childhood stuff. We talked about, um, you know, like defining moments and people in our lives. And I'm kind of just going to like uh, carry on with a bit of that uh, trend, highlighting those things. So as I mentioned in the previous podcast, as a child, I was like deathly shy as a young child. Um, don't say my name. Don't look at me. I don't exist. Transition to kindergarten was really difficult with separation anxiety stuff. And clearly I came out of that bubble. Um, I have an older sister. I grew up with, you know, the family of four. We were a, you know, blue collar family who, you know, was able to afford the things that we wanted to do. I was a dancer, my sister played soccer, and, you know, relatively normal, quote unquote, kind of family. There wasn't a lot of substantial things. I look back and was like, it was such a struggle. There was just events in life, right? Um, so for me, through those like elementary school years, looking back now, when I look back at the things that I heal now in adulthood and patterns and understanding why I do things certain way when we look at attachment patterns and things like that. Um, I look back and there were some key moments in elementary school. I always got put in different classrooms, so I'd have to make new friends every year, whereas my friends always got put in the classes with each other. And I remember being really kind of devastated every year that school would start up and I'd have to like restart all the time. And I found out later in life I think maybe grade seven or something, the teachers intentionally did that because I was so adaptive. And I was like, you guys fucking ruined me with that. Like, <laughs> I could do it doesn't mean I should have had to. That gave me a lot of my own insecurities, you know, always having to build friendships. I look now at where that has served me in life and I'm entirely grateful and I see how that evolved me. But back then it sucked. It sucked. Um, there were I, I relate like having moved schools like that all the time, right? It was, you, yeah, it, it's shitty at the time, but boy, does it ever, it makes you resilient and you get really good at dealing with people. But then you also get really bad at shape-shifting and becoming what other people need you to be so you can fit in. And when you're becoming more authentic and your truer version of yourself, you got to undo all that shit. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> with both parts, right? Um, but through like the middle part of elementary school, I... Um, I gained weight and I became kind of like a chubby kid and I got really bullied and I had a really difficult time through a couple of those years. And those were defining moments of my high school years, believe it or not. I think it was in grade four or five when I went through a lot of that. A lot of nights crying by myself. I remember, you know, I even remember punching a girl who had made fun of me so bad one day and I didn't even get in trouble because even the teacher was like, I'm actually glad she stood up for herself. Cool. 
That's good. And like my parents 100% supported me, but I remember just being like so heartbroken, um, you know, just around that kind of bullying. And I promised myself that when I got to the other side of it, I would never treat people like that. Um, and I, you know, I, I think for the most part, I really stuck to that. And um, through my high school years, ended up being friends with various different groups of people. I was um, quite popular in high school. I had various different friends. I certainly didn't struggle with the bullying end of things anymore. I was like a straight A student, but I was also a straight A partier. So I, I like, I straddled the line of being super responsible. I was a dancer. I had a job at a young age to pay for a car before I turned 16. I did all the right things. So I had permission in my mind to do all the wrong things. And I definitely straddled that line like a professional. Nice. <laughs> that like I was the kid she had to worry about. She never had to worry about when my sister was coming home, but grade eight, she was like, where's Jolene? It's two in the morning. I'd be up on a mountain drinking beer, having fires. <laughs> you know, um, I, I made sure I lived hard, but I also worked hard. I played hard. I worked hard. And I still feel like I do that. Um, it's both balance for me. Um, but with that, uh, you know, I had the beautiful experience in high school of having great experiences. I have fond memories of that time in my life. Gratefully, I know not everybody has that. Um, and, it, you know, I was the valedictorian. And every year that I've planned our 10-year reunions, this last one has been on hold because of COVID for a couple of years. But, you know, I'm reminded of just how grateful I am to be connected to all of the different groups in my high school and in my grad year. Um, and that, you know, I never felt defined by any one of them. And I really embraced all of the various friendships that I was able to grow and foster over the years. So that was where a lot of that beauty lies. And I consider myself someone who, I mean, I was born and raised in Canada, so I know a lot of people around here, but I also really value connections and intentionally, you know, um, maintain, especially through social media nowadays, makes it a lot easier, but I intentionally maintain a lot of those connections, um, you know. Which high school? I went to Valley View. Ooh, yeah. I was Norcam. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Now I'm on the other side of the bridge, but yeah. you know, <laughs> I was a Dallas girl growing up. So like a big part of my heart still belongs out there, still lives nice. out. Um, so, you know, moving into high school, like I said, I have really fond memories, but the end of my high school years, my grade 12 years, um, my dad died of suicide. And that was the biggest, most profound turning point in my life, um, especially when we talk about career. So you had this like Hewlett Holmes uh, idea that literally was all built in your mind. And it was like you literally just dropped the blueprint and walked away. You know? And then years later, went and cleaned that blueprint up, cleaned the site up, you know, and explored what was left there. But essentially, you just had to kind of up and walk away. I had sort of this... I don't know, pick a career. What do you want to do? I was a dancer and I would help teach dance to pay for the classes and stuff. So I was like, I'll be a teacher. I loved academics. I was a tutor through high school as well. Um, and I love learning. Like I'm a student of life and I love academia as well as, you know, the real thing. So it fit for me to be a teacher. Really glad I didn't though, but I love <laughs> And I've, I've, you know, just, um, it, it's kind of limited in the school district stuff, but I love teaching and throughout all of my jobs now, I am in huge teaching roles, right? I, I'm a supervisor for master's students um, and, and other, you know, social work and counseling students uh, and have been for probably 15 years now plus, but even in my old job at mental health and addictions that I had with the government, um, I taught addictions training. 
and had other um, teaching roles there as well. So I've always been able to integrate it into what I do, which I love because I have a passion for sharing that knowledge and equipping other people. So that's always been there. But essentially when my dad died, that was the turning point to say like, I wanna help people, right? Um, and social work was kind of the field that I wanted to go into. And that kind of evolved from my own suicide attempt that year and me being, you know, forced to go and sit in an office with a counselor <laughs> who looking back now, I really didn't offer her much. Like I was a bit of a, you know, getting water from the stone, just giving you what I needed to give you to get you off my back kind of thing back then. But um, I really respected her and felt connected to her. And, um, you know, even just the role she had in my life really inspired me to want to do that as well and later in my in my job uh, that I got at mental health and addictions which I'll talk about timing and how things kind of really align in bizarre ways wonderful serendipitous ways um, but uh, her and I ended up collaborating as professionals later on which I think is just such a beautiful thing to be on the other side of the table and have that same that professional respect from her um, mm -hmm. you know on the other side and I've done the same myself um, I've mentored previous um, clients into student roles and seen them on the other side of the bridge too, which is, I think, so amazing at busting stigma in the mental health realm. So essentially, that's like a big catalyst in my life. When we talk about people who define sort of our life in that grade 12 year, there was a math teacher who um, just took me under his wing. I don't know why, I don't know what, but I'm so grateful. And he has remained connected with me and my family ever since. And I mean, this was like 22 years ago. Um, and uh, he's like a pseudo grandparent. They're amazing. They love my kids like their own. Um, and he is a very um, monumental person in my life who just believed in me. You know, um, when I quit smoking, he was like on my back trying to get me to quit smoking. And I didn't do it in that grade 12 year, but I did it, uh, you know, a few years later kind of thing. But, uh, you know, when someone is just that invested in you, uh, sometimes that's all you need, you know. So that was a little bit of that story. And, um, you know, I look at how my life evolved. So my first job out of the social work, um, you know, out of my university degree, uh, my first job was at uh, intake at Mental Health and Addictions with Interior Health. And my first day in orientation, I was like, holy shit. And it felt like I had been gut punched. The job I was doing was the job that called my dad a day too late. Mm. If you were suicidal, that was the contact you would make and they would return the call and book you in. And I remember answering the phone when they called and I said, it's too late, he's dead. Wow. <laughs> and when I realized I was now that person sitting in that chair, I knew none of it was an accident. And I was like, this is exactly where I'm supposed to be. So I did that job for 13 years. I, you know, had the beauty of merging into um, a different kind of role there, working with young adults who have uh, concurrent disorders, so mental health and addictions uh, issues co-occurring. And I spent the majority of my time there in that role while I had the time and energy for that really demanding caseload. A lot of vicarious trauma experience through there. I left there with a lot of restraining orders and death threats and things like that because people were very unwell. But I loved my job when I left it. I, I just ended up having to leave because I had three kids, daycare issues, and knew I wanted to be in private practice. So the other thing that evolved while I was there was my passion for suicide awareness and prevention. And um, I, I started kind of organizing an annual event around that. And there was one lady, again, monumental people in our lives, 
um, Mary Widmer. And she actually worked with my dad. He used to work at Ponderosa Lodge as a maintenance guy there. And she had worked with him and did the, she, she, she was like an ordained minister as well. And she did his little service for all the residents at Ponderosa. She did his little funeral service there for us. And I remembered her from there, but she had now started this grief and loss practice. So she was like a grief and loss counselor in town. So I called her to be a part of these events. And I said, you know, Mary, one day I'm going to work with you. One day I want to do what you're doing. I want to counsel people through grief and loss, like specifically, right? So eight years go by. I kind of chat with her once a year during that event. I slowly got my master's degree, I think over like a four-year period by distance, working full-time and doing all of that. Then I had my twins, I had my son, and then I had my twins. And then I remember a week before I went back uh, after my maternity leave with my twins, I get this random call from Mary. Do you think it's time for us to meet? And I said, oh my God, I think so. Because I don't know if I can do $3,000 a month in childcare and run this full-time gig. I think it's time for me to jump ship now. And I said, give me six months of going back to this job, getting back into routine, using up sick time for daycare germs and all of this stuff, I'll be there. And no sooner, no later than six months, boom, I completely left my job there and swapped over. And it took maybe a month for me to have a full practice. Wow, that's amazing. Timing and intentions and planting the seeds and having things unfold, just like this podcast two years ago that I wrote out and said, this is what I want to do. Two years later, it came fully sprouted. Same thing with that. I look back and I'm like, wow, there's no way I could have done this 10 years ago. There's no way I could have done it 15 years ago because everything I gained and everything I learned through my job at mental health, the connections I made, the time of my life that it was at, you know, it got me through two maternity leaves and a lot of different things. Uh, everything happened in due time. And I'm just such a believer of timing. And sometimes we want things to go so fast, but I never felt like things weren't going fast enough. I never even... I imagined I would be here, but I never imagined I would be here, you know? So really in the last, like, I think I've been here for four and a half years now. In the last two and a half years, my practice has really evolved into various different um, realms. And a lot of that too was another catalyst of a monumental time of change in my life, which was um, my marriage ending and really choosing um, to live differently and not live small in terms of what we settle for and a, a true returning to my more authentic self, a very intentional returning to my more authentic self and in alignment with what I was doing in this work. And all of that was very well supported when I saw how much of my, um, my professional life really started to expand. And through that, I started merging intuitive work. I started emerging um, my energy work, um, working with Holy Fire Reiki energy, as well as some mediumship stuff that has just lately started to evolve into this. And I've watched it all just unfold. And again, I trust the timing of my life and the events of my life to be like, just keep taking me down the river to where it's going to go. You know, I'll try and keep my hands off a little bit. I'm very much a, I will control and make things happen. And they do, but they don't always have to be that hard to make them happen. I've learned that now. I did not learn that in my younger years. But again, we live and we learn, right? So that's kind of like the snapshot of my life and where it came to. And, you know, it's interesting because, Jason, I was going to ask you during yours, like, you know, like you're doing all the right things and you kind of have a grasp of it and you know what you know at the time. But then when you go back and look, you're like, I 
actually probably had that figured out a little better than I was aware of, or I somehow managed to make all of that go without any awareness of what was happening or that I now know what was happening. You know, it's really fascinating. Um, but there does come a point for me, at least, and I know through the people that I support um, and, and who I counsel that there becomes this definitive moment where you can't unsee the things you've seen now. And that really activates a lot of growth and potential moving forward. You know, mm -hmm. when you get that point of what I'm looking at from my history, from my past, from my present, I can't actually unsee that stuff now. I have to respond differently to it. That became like a big catalyst point for me. And that was for me a couple of years ago. So I always talk about my dad's death as being a monumental time in my life, but most of the wounds I've been tending to and healing to in the last couple of years came long before that, you know? Um, Definitely. I find the same thing. Yeah. yeah, it's a very cool integration of all of that. And I think we use the parts of our story to our benefit when we need them. And really from 17 to, you know, um, you know, 37, for me, that 20 year period, I very much used my dad's death as a pretty definitive part of my life. And that is the material I was working with at that time, you know. Um, and it served me well. It helped me build a lot of things. You know, I built a marriage and a family and a whole bunch of other things. I had to unbuild some of that stuff as well because it really wasn't for my greatest good. Um, but again, no regrets because everything was necessary to get me to where I am now, you know, um, all very valuable experiences, you know? I think there, if, if, like, look, like you're hearing your story and looking at mine, there are no invaluable experiences really like and you need to kind of that's why there's, there's some people who struggle in life and i think it's because there's probably a variety of reasons but i look at the times i struggled in life with myself and mental health etc it's because i was fighting with it in my mind i had something different i wanted to do but your life is there's a there's a path to your life my my dad um is very much he always believed that there's you have a path you're supposed to be on and when you're on that path, you know it. That's and the things... freeway we talked about last last podcast there. When you feel like you're on the freeway, it's all lit up, it's smooth. Yeah. You feel like you're off-roading, you're forcing a different path to get to the end goal, which we do. Yep. It just doesn't have to be that hard, right? No, no. And I think if you're willing just to kind of roll with it, things get a lot better. I mean, you still got to put the effort in. You still got to show up. You know what I mean? Like, but you, you just, if you've got to, if you're... Life is, lead, if you're self-aware enough, you can see kind of, oh, this is the path I'm on. And it, but as long as you don't try to have, this is, but I want to do this instead, right? <laughs> like, and it takes a bit of self-awareness to be, to realize you're on the path you're supposed to be on. I'm doing like yourself right now. I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that comes with like intuitive living, right? Like once we start to heal our traumas and our trauma responses, we start to understand our body and our intuitive inner knowing a lot more. And we can use that as our guide rather than the things that armor us up and shift us. Like I talked about, you know, that shape shifting piece in my earlier years to people please and fit in and all of those things. Right. Once I undo all of that stuff, then you can truly see like who you are, where you're meant to be, what people feel good. It doesn't matter if those ones don't like you because those people probably don't feel good. Um, that kind of thing, right? So yeah, when when we are in alignment with where we're supposed to be, it's, it's more flow, it's less push, right? Um, but a good portion of our lives 
is very ego-based and we are building, I say, like the structures that we're then meant to deconstruct later for better growth, right? Um, and some of us do it sooner than others, you know, we are all here at different times, different stages, different places kind of thing. So some people do that earlier in life and maybe that's not their first rodeo here, right? Mm -hmm. um, other people, a whole other topic. <laughs> right? It totally is. So other people do it a little later in life, right? But like I said, there seems to be this definitive point where all of a sudden you kind of can't, you can't ignore what you've seen now, right? And it's like, okay, forward accountability and growth from there, right? And again, it's as you start to see, you know, all of the different career changes and this and that, and now you've totally found your groove and you know you found your groove because all the people and things are coming to you. That's how you and I met, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I feel like, you know, you found me in my groove and I found you in a bit of your groove. And like, I love how it's like when you, you can't, you can't even imagine those things falling on your lap. That's the fun one. The ones that you couldn't even imagine, the ones you couldn't even fathom are the ones that fall on your lap, right? Exactly. And you've said way better than what I was trying to say. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because you've got all the education to back it up. But it's it's true. Like, and, and, and I think one of the tragedies is there are people in this world, and I know at least one or two of them, who I don't think they're ever going to find that groove because they haven't dealt with the shit from their youth, right? But you have to face that at some point. Yeah. And you know, it's, it always surprises me because again, like that, that might be the case, but then there might be this one interaction, this one moment, this one, something that just sparks something for that person. And then the wheels slowly start turning and all of a sudden it catches. So I always hold hope for that. I mean, that is like a blessing and a curse for me as a social worker, as a counselor, I believe that we all have the innate ability to change um, I believe we are all capable of change. Um, so with that, I end up probably sticking around longer in places I shouldn't stick around because I believe the person can change more than they believe that, right? <laughs> I, I know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> curse um but essentially like i do believe that and when we talk about like those kind of folks we're we're really looking at like from a psychological standpoint if people are interested in this we're looking at locus of, of control um do you have an internal locus of control or an external locus of control do you feel like you have control over the things happening in your life or do you feel like all of your life is out of your control because essentially that is going to be a definitive piece in like self-determinism like i have the power to make change in my life um, my, I created a workshop a, a couple of years ago to kind of really get a lot of this information out to more people in less time because it was such a common piece of growth people were starting to do at the, at the point of COVID is like, who, what, what is my truest self? And essentially it, it helps you align with that, but intrinsically internally sourcing all of your happiness, fulfillment, and life purpose, because we live in a very codependent society that is sourcing that externally, right? So again, did my life happen to me or is my life happening for me? And how am I, how am I like the maker of, like, I, I fully believe that I get to create a lot of what comes into my life um, and, and transform that pain into purpose. And I got lists everywhere, right? Like I, you know, my podcast was on this list. I have a list of like, you know, people that I would like to attract into my life, opportunities, places, things, all of that stuff. Um, and I believe that I can very much have a lot of control over that also through things like mental discipline and what I choose to focus on and where I um, commit to myself, right? In terms of what I'm willing to commit to, where I won't lose myself now and all of these other things that dilute us through our experience on our freeway, right? Yes. 
whole bunch of those things, which all of those little things we will talk about in podcast topics. And I'll give you juicy how to's and Jason will give you real life nitty gritty, gory details of things. Because <laughs> I'm good at that. That's my thing. <laughs> So that's how I've managed to take, and if you look at my, my website, joleendon.com, uh, I love how it rhymes too. It's awesome. <laughs> it's, <laughs> uh, I talk about that in my little about me piece is like uh, this whole integration piece is about how I have also brought my life, my personal experience, my experiential um, uh, experience of all of this to my therapy work as well, because I am just as human as the rest of you, right? Um, so it's about merging that professional understanding and all of the therapeutic interventions with also my own evolution, right? And, um, you know, in my government job that I had, I was always so strongly boundary. There was so much power dynamics um, and differentials between really, you know, impoverished individuals that I was working with. Um, we had to be very firmly boundaried. And that was like a weird conflicting place to be because it's it's not a very human place to be. But professionally, we're so strongly, um, you know, encouraged to be like that ethically. So I love that now in the Instagram world, in this world where we are trying to break stigma, we actually need to, uh, and I can do this more in private practice than I could there because the power indifference isn't so significant here. Um, but there is just this realness in the human interaction. And especially through the grief work that we do here, we use a companioning model based on Alan Wolfelt's material and stuff. So even through that companioning mo model, I've always used my story through my suicide awareness stuff. Like people are aware of what my story is. Um, and that has been one of the greatest, um, you know, professional and personal advancements for me ever is to be vulnerable, to show those parts of myself. Um, and most people come to me because of that piece. They feel connection. They feel like they're going to be understood. And that's always the intention behind it is to normalize what people are going through, to model what it is that we then expect a client to be able to go through, right? Like, you know, one of the most conflicting things was sitting there with my clients and my government work and expecting them to unload about all of these trials and tribulations in their lives and me being like so entirely boundary that I'm not even really supposed to tell them if I'm married or when they ask me how old I am, I'm supposed to deflect it and say, well, what does that matter for you? And shit like that. It's like, why is this a one-way street? That's the power dynamic, right? So I really love that there is freedom to be more real and authentic and model to others because I am in the fucking ring with you and I am going to train. It's not about me. But you need to know that, like, I'm there with you. I will be there with you in that way. And that's what we're going to do through this podcast is allow all of you guys to kind of be here with us and to hear commonalities in our stories. That is one of the coolest ways that we can heal is when we hear something familiar of someone else's story. And then we can observe it from a distance with less judgment, more compassion. We can almost like praise somebody for going through what they're going through. Whereas we might shame ourselves for that because we're viewing it from a really distorted place, right? Mm -hmm. So between your story and my story, Jason, people are going to see commonalities and be like, oh yeah, okay, well, that's kind of like me. Like, okay, that sounds like a bit of the anxiety or overthinking that I do. And okay, this doesn't mean I need to pathologize the whole thing and whatever, right? Um, all of those pieces. So yeah, so also some of the juicy details you're going to hear is all the maladaptive shit we did through this time. Like I spent a lot of years drinking. I spent a lot of years. And again, like I said, I balanced that line. I was super responsible. So I could never really get in shit for partying too much. Um, 
So I always manage that well in my own mind to justify things. But essentially, you know, you get to hear about all of our bad habits, right? And um, it's, you know, places where I lost myself, um, places where I self-abandoned, right? And sacrificed things or lost focus or a, a lot of different things, right? We all have, we all have shit that brought us down, you know? And I remember, I know it's not, and I'm also going to be careful about talking about my separation too, because it's not, it's not all my story. It's somebody else's story too. Right. But for me, I didn't like the person I became. And it, it became just so aware to me that all of the maladaptive ways to cope within that environment is what I then was like, I don't even like the person I've had to become here. And this can't, I can't be okay with that. You know, so really being able to look at our lives with less judgment and shame, but essentially like, holy, how did this become this? The frog in boiling water sometimes, you know, mm -hmm. people put this in their jobs and their careers a lot, things like that. So we want to light you guys up. We want to give you inspiration. We want to stuff you with knowledge. We want to make you laugh. And um, yeah, that this th these are our stories. This is who you're getting in raw form. Which is why we started with us telling our stories. <laughs> Two episodes. <laughs> And I didn't leave any room for you to ask me questions, but that's okay. That's okay. Cause that's fine. It was perfect. You kind of answered all the questions I was going to ask. anyway. So yeah. We got lots more to come though. What, what are we doing next week, Jolene? No, we wrote that down, didn't we? Yeah, we probably need to decide that we could probably talk about vicarious trauma because I feel like we both rolled into that relatively um, new. What, what do we got written down there? Vicarious trauma. So let's just stick with that plan. <laughs> do it we'll just get into the gory details right away exactly so that will be next week where there's only one show yeah this is the one one this is the double header one off for this yeah. one here i don't know baseball terminology so fuck it anyways <laughs> we'll be back next week talking vicarious trauma all right bye guys bye bye mm -hmm.